Welcome to the Oral Traditions Show on WCRX-FM. I'm Robert Hanser, Associate Professor of Humanities, History, and Social Sciences at Columbia College, Chicago. In this series, students from the Department of Communications Spring 2023 Oral Traditions class explore West African cultures and the African diaspora. To begin this episode, students draw comparisons between their own cultures and that of the Maroons, formerly enslaved Africans who fled imprisonment and formed close-knit communities throughout the Americas. As a professor of history, I sit down with students to discuss specific cultural elements like naming, music, death rituals, and spirituality. We are the Cultural Melting Pot. My name is Sierra. My name's Luz. My name's Angela. And I'm Winnie. And we are just talking about some of the things that we found while we did our research. And we're going to touch on a few things, some rituals, um, some music, and things like that. Um, and we also are interviewing our professor, Robert Hansard, started off. We were learning about how people deal with um, death and how they actually go about going when it's their time, which is really nice because in my culture, I'm Mexican. So a lot of us celebrate Day of the Dead. So a lot of people believe right after um, you pass away, you actually have this chance to still be alive in the afterworld um, where it's called the land of the dead. And it's really, really nice because then they also get to see these other aspects. But um, I think it was really nice to touch upon like other ones that I didn't even know that were possible Um, such as being buried in a tree or underneath a tree, actually, or even, like, possibly how people go about other things. Um, Yeah, so, like, in Ghana, they use, like, fantasy coffins, and they usually, like, it's either, like, a boat or whatever, but it's mostly made because of whatever the profession was in in life. So, like, if you were, like, a writer, you might want to get buried in like a pen or something like that, um, which I thought it was really cool because even though you're dead, you're still very much represented in what you were doing in your lifetime. Or what you actually like doing also, because the one with the boat, he loved making it for other people, not only for himself to enjoy, but for other people. So why they even did it, because it was just the message of the storyline of how he was passing as well, not only because he enjoyed it, but also because the idea of like telling the story of how he passes. I think even at first, I mean, at least for me, I was like, when we walked in, it was a lot telling the story about animals and like um, animals like underwater and stuff like that. Like animals that you, I thought initially, I was like, why are we like, what does this, you know, have to do with our, with our, the work that we're doing in class. And then it gets on and it goes from animals, it goes on to humans and how we do, we, how we, celebrate life in different cultures so that was really that was great and not only just coming from like plants dying to animal underwater animals to creatures on land and then I went to us like mammals <laughs> yeah mammals yeah um so that was super interesting and just seeing how we culturally celebrate things different and even just through life what was your view through it Winnie no, I did not go to the museum oh yeah but, but from what it sounds like it reminded me of like 
the second Black Panther movie when they were like showing the cast being beamed up and it had like their faces and things like the poses they would do it kind of reminds me of that but I guess that was probably just for royalty but like they seem really similar or like at least inspired yeah. by it. and I think just talking about shortly about this Black Panther movie I loved it don't get me wrong but I think that they even took aspects from the actual culture itself because they weren't wearing in America we wear black to a funeral mm-hmm. some people I know in Africa they actually do not wear black they truly stay away from dark colors and they only wear bright colors um, when somebody passes and they go to the wake and so forth and so forth because they're telling yeah. that they're still alive yeah like in celebration of mm-hmm. life yeah exactly yeah and they're I believe in the service they're also playing music to like show that they're still with us in mm-hmm. a sense yeah i think a lot of cultures definitely um represent life and death in a different way than we do in america so yeah like you said with wearing black i think a lot of other countries they wear they dress up and they dress i mean i guess you know we dress up but we just wear black and i think it's like when he said it's a celebration of life and it's the legacy i mean even if it's not someone like your family it's just still in other countries people definitely celebrate life and death very different because they do want to keep that legacy living on for the person who passed. We learned about the Maroons, which was a really cool thing to actually learn about and how they went about things. Idea that I never even thought about when I was learning about all their cultures and how they were able to sustain their own kind of land, their own kind of, what is the word I'm looking for? Like identity? Yeah, identity. I love learning their names um, I learned I learned that their names are powerful to them, just like anywhere else. It's your name should be you and identifies you. And I think if somebody, if you were from that culture and then you came to America, briefly touching with enslavery or with just having to leave and flee, the thing is, is that when they, when people who were in America wanted to go back to learning about their identity from their culture and getting back to the roots. They actually change their names to feel that they're part of this culture. And I think that's very empowering because it brings this identity that they didn't even know that they had yeah, within them. I think them. a lot of people, too, like, especially coming from Africa, I know a lot of people who change their names so that it's easy for other people to understand, too. So there's also that kind of the sense of you want to be accepted and you want to, you know, fit in kind of. So. I know a lot of people, even myself, I simplify my name in a way so that people don't have to mess it up, you know, because it's like you come from not that my name is like my name isn't really ethnic or anything, but it's just the simple fact that some people simply just cannot pronounce it or it's a name they've never seen or heard. So a lot of times people do change up their name. But like you said, at the end of the day, that's their identity and that's who they are. So it's really interesting how our names hold so much weight in cultures and yeah um so i know like we're talking about names but like i have family members who like they have to think about their kids names both in like the american culture and the spanish culture because some names in like english like don't mean the same thing in spanish and like they don't want their kids to be bullied and stuff so i think that like in on my culture specifically they think a lot about like names and like the meaning behind names like my name's loose and it means light and like my mom like takes pride in that so it's like it identifies you and like things like that so i think that like your name should be important and i do definitely see that in like what we learned in class as well i think if i'm remembering right there were like names for the different days of the week or month i also think that that's really interesting because i don't at least know of any other culture that does that 
or like you'll see a lot of people with a similar name but it's not necessarily because like the name it's popular it's like related to the month or week which i thought was really interesting because i haven't heard that anywhere else i think it's also interesting because i know that my last name came from in slavery when the um spain conquered mexico for for a long time it was like towards like the 18th 18th century yeah the 18th century that they were finally kind of going through this but a lot of the last names were given to mexican cultures because they were being enslaved so that's how they knew who you were part of or for the disrespect to disrespect a mexican and that's what happened with my last name which uh, my last name is mascote the background of that in spain is actually it's being i'm being called a pet my last name is being called a pet so it's very much interesting i didn't know this until growing up and I actually learned what my last name came from and I get to take power in that which is really nice because then nobody in America knows what mascote even stands for so I just look at everyone I was like my name is Angela Mascote so it's very interesting to see how, yeah, like how it translates. I can relate that relate to that because my last name is Butler and you know the whole thing within slavery it was like your occupation of like what you were doing at the time and I hate my last name for that I did not like my last name and yeah, it's a whole thing of like kind of feeling shameful for that because it is disrespectful. Yeah. I think we touched upon music here and there, which was a very different beat for me because I'm not used to it. And it was just like interesting to see that go by. This is like a very broad statement, but I think that like listening to music that comes from these countries originates in certain countries. It has meaning behind it, and I think a lot of the music that I listen to now, it doesn't really have meaning behind it. It just sounds good. So I think sometimes when we listen to music that comes from somewhere else, we're like, oh, this sounds different, but it probably has some meaning to yeah. it. Well, I actually like listened to a lot of the music. Like I like was researching it and just kept on going. Um, and I just found very interesting how some music was only performed by women and some were only performed by like men and like you can see like you can hear the difference like women like yes they use percussion instruments but it was like more clapping and like like not like drums and then when I would listen to like the right well not the regular music but um music that like men would like lead on it was mostly like drums and you can hear a lot of the drums in it and I just thought that was very cool and interesting. I kind of did a little research too just about one drum that's used I do not remember the country, but the djembe and how they honor the spirits that are made from it, like the skin and then like the tree, which represents like life and then the breath that you're putting into the drum. I thought was really beautiful. That's why I've seen a lot of drum or just percussion based things in the music. I can see has like a lot of significance. Mm-hmm. Even at the museum, um, some of the stuff that we were yeah. listening to, you could play, um, I think it was like bird sounds and it was certain sounds meant certain things so i think that's another thing when we listen to this music it's it has a meaning a lot of the it's all intentional it's just important to hear the beat and how it's used and i know in some tribes use their own heartbeat so that way they hear it so like if your heartbeat is like that's like that's their main beat through like the whole song which i find is a beautiful statement because it's again it's with meaning it's with everything growing up i got to again learn about my culture and i was so happy because there is a flakuriku group and that shows you how to do traditional dances and i got i got a very much big honor just to learn about the aztec 
one of the Aztec dance. So you actually have to learn the beat in order to dance it. So you're doing And this is, we're talking about before they go, so this dance is also a ritual before they even get to um, actually go and fight. And this dance is their workout. That's how they put it. It'd be like their workout. But they're also praying during this dance where they're like, thank you, God. They'd be like looking west, north, south, and east for like the water, the fire, the earth and the, all of these elements and then they would even like within their dance again the bee is what hits it because it kept everyone going of where they're supposed to be looking or how many steps it should be and it's always three or four because of the water earth um, wind and all the elements when i had research about the um, maroons i learned that a lot of when they were going to war that actually had that impact of when they were doing their spiritual um, beliefs as well and that's how they became a lot more independent because they actually took their hope in their fighting skills within battle but when they were away from the wars the fight the everything they took that into their their spirituality they learned this and how it brings them hope and I think that's what generally everyone needs is hope it was really interesting to see how their like religion motivated them to keep going, how they would take these little idols or little trinkets with them to give them luck and motivation. I could see that they were really deeply rooted in what they believed in, and they carried it with them throughout all aspects, which I found really beautiful. Yeah, I think part of that is why religion is so important to people now, because it kind of allows you to stay in touch with your past and with your culture and um, just kind of the way, you know, a lot of people grew up. I think church is kind of one of those things. It lets you kind of like, t it ties back to your roots a little bit in a lot of cultures, not just, you know, in America or whatever, but just like everywhere, Africa as well. We thought our lovely professor was um, someone that knows a lot about this topic, obviously, Robert Hansard. Um, he studied at Drake University, majored in history, um, and then went on to NIU where he got his master's and PhD. Congrats to you, that's a big accomplishment. Um, and now teaches at Columbia College where he also did a project with a few of his friends in 2022 called 500 Voices, a catalog of published narratives by Africans enslaved in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, we did get a chance to kind of look through that in our class. Um, it's a book. It's a really great book. Um, I would love to read read it entirely. Um, lots of great um, pieces in there, a lot of good context. So, yeah, just we want to ask you a few questions. Uh, we know that this is kind of your thing, your topic. So I just wanted to start with um, what culture do you identify with, if any at all? I'm the diaspora. I'm African. I'm of the diaspora. That's if, if, if at the roots of my identity, those are probably right, right there, um, in terms of how I define myself. Um, you know, I, and I think my Africanness is, you know, part of my American identity, but also to some degree part of an African identity, and, and to some degree even um, interaction with Native American perception and understandings because we're on that land, right. um, and those things intersect with my identity um, to sort of say, say who I am. And that's different from maybe someone who is maybe from Africa who might have a different origin. And they may not talk, speak about Native American experiences, but they may talk about local groups in a different way. We did a lot of, I guess, research and a lot of learning about the Maroon tribe. 
So what does the Maroon Tribe mean to you? You know, I would call them the, the strongest freedom fighters before Toussaint Louverture, before the things that happened in America, that in the slavery emancipation proclamation, that type of thing. E even in the, in the era of 1619, African Maroons broke away from slave systems and established their own societies based on their own identities. That's from all the way to places like um, what is now Argentina, very where south, all the way up through um, Nova Scotia into Canada. And that includes the United States as well. So you have these groups that, that really can put pressure on the plantation economies, which were set in place to sort of exploit people and to keep them controlled in these sort of uh, regimented labor and coercive systems, you know, which, you know, obviously, you know, plug race into the way that, they, you, know, you know, they function. But these Maroons broke away from all of that. They established themselves as separate. Um, it, it was the Tiano Indians in Jamaica, and those are some of the more famous Maroons who um, taught those Maroons how to survive on the land. And the interesting thing is that, you know, you have people that come from very clear African cultures, and what they're able to do is transplant those concepts from African cultures into the Americas. So all they needed was a Tiano spiritualist to lead them to the right leaves, and then the, the one who knew about the leaves from the African sides could plug in, and all of a sudden he's plugged in. Now he can function as a spiritualist here. And then that spiritualness transfers into the way the Maroons could resist slavery. Maybe maybe learning about them has played a part in maybe your life and how you move through life as just being an African-American in America. I do kind of see myself in that flux space sometimes. Um, is that I'm not completely African. I, I wouldn't profess to say that. I can speak some, some of the language. I'm learning uh, the tree small. But... Uh, even if I was fluent, you know, I don't have that connection. But but some of me is still, in, in, I mean, there's an African identity that has grew up and it manifests itself in the Americas. A lot of this revolves around spirituality. So do you believe in spirituality? And if you do, how do you practice that? I do, you know, I could say I'm, I'm a PK. I grew up in church. I grew up and uh, I could give this example. Um, you know, I grew up in church. Uh, I just want to, for people who don't know, PK is a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for people PK, who don't know that. <laughs> PK, past, past this kid, you know what I'm saying? I grew up, I actually played drums in church. So, you know, I was there. People catch the spirit in church, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I actually learned about, um, I took this music class, uh -huh. uh, like my freshman year of college, right? Yeah, yeah. And they, we hit a week about, um, what is it, gospel music. Uh-huh. And the effects of, like, just the music yeah. behind it is just amazing. Yeah. When it goes into church, the music kind of uplifts you, and then people are dancing there, and some people are like, we have to hold somebody down just yes. so, like, they don't shake or, yes. you know, just to keep them here on the earth rather than going up uh -huh. with them. Yeah. And it, it, like, for an outside expectation, somebody's like, that's silly. I'm like, but, like, if you actually go to these, you you don't understand how much it really affects you without even it being known. Without a doubt. And then I'm going to hit it with my culture, but, like, when I go to, like, a Hispanic kind of, like, music out, like, parties, I just have to dance. Like, there is no way you're not going to catch me on the dance floor doing my little thing, going, <laughs> like, you know, movements, swirling. But then when I hear, like, a mariachi music, well, we have our gritos, and it it's, like, different kind of like sounds some people say you sound like a bird you sound like a dog you sound like a chihuahua you sound like 
I'm lucky, you know? But these things, like, once you hear that, like, somebody's hitting the perfect pitch of, like, you know, like, they're hit, hitting that certain aspect. They're like, oh, and then they do this grito, and it takes over somebody's life. It mm-hmm. takes over somebody, and that's what I think when I when I hear you talk. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I mean, yeah, music totally does that. I mean, that's what it that's what it would, would definitely would do in, in the church setting, you know? That's why, for me, it was so strange to go to the Bight of Benin, where you have originations of sort of African spirituality, and particularly voodoo, and catch the same speed of the drum and the same interactiveness by someone catching that spirit as released, not anything that's a pure malevolent, the same freedom. I mean, they caught the spirit, catch the Holy Ghost. People, people let, let loose. Yeah. To see that same thing at a, at, a, at a ceremony that will be considered a voodoo ceremony in Benin. And even like I told my mom, you know, I'm a, I was a PK, so I told my mom just to see, you know, what she was saying. And she was somewhat struck by that. She was struck by that. She had to sort of say, hmm, that's something there. I can't deny that there's a connection here. And I think that's part of what's at work there in terms of spirituality in those ways. It manifests in ways that, you know, sometimes they fit what, what we want. And then sometimes it just doesn't, you know, because it's just mm-hmm. outside the the, 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 the constraints or the, or the bounds of the way we make sense. But music is, is, is the great way to sort of get at it because yeah. music is a language that, uh, I mean, you can't write it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's just it, it's, it, that's a beauty in its, in its own right. You can't. There, there's no word. Some things that happen when you listen to music, there's no way to describe it. Do you feel like your history and your life being a PK, just being in the church and having that background, do you think that had anything to do with going into history, learning about history, and especially African-American history at all? I, I think certainly. I mean, it, it, it played a role in that. My dad always had those books around, Bible books and other things, and um, always had, had, had you know different texts around, always in his library, so that got me to read and stuff, and always a bunch of records bunch of gospel workers tons of those around so between the two of those i think i just got plugged in and then my neighbor across the street had uh they had the encyclopedia britannica or no world world book encyclopedia mm. and i read each night i got a, i got a one night b to a a i and the next night b b to l you know whatever all the b's all that and each night i got a book and read the whole thing through because i was just so you know excited about that Has, um learning the icon of learning about the icon spirituality changed your life or had any effect on you in general one thing that that really stuck to me is that from the, these systems they have a monotheistic sort of sort of thing going like the icon main is is giami which is like the Sadinkra symbol that means accepting God, there is no other. And that there's a direct, there's something being conveyed there. You know, when the colonists and others arrived, their perception was that these people did not have monotheistic belief. They called their stuff, you know, sort of a fetish. And so in the way of describing African spirituality as fetish, it reduced it, and so people couldn't understand. So the Akan, and my research of the Akan, and each day I'm learning, you know, different and newer things, though, has centered and brought, like, hey, this is a whole different piece. And, and then understanding that element of spirituality that's, that goes millennia old and is that sort of, sort of heavy, and then connecting that to uh, maybe sort of contemporary things mm-hmm. has, has been important. Yeah, how do, you, how do you feel like learning and knowing all of this plays into your, like, how it combines with today's world, like how it showcases in some ways. I mean, I'm sure like in gospel music and listening and going to church, it kind of takes us back to our roots a little bit. We get to, you know, tap into a little bit of that. But how do you think, uh, like what practices do you see in today's world that comes from a con spirituality? Um, yeah, another a good question. Um, um, I mean, like some of the things you guys named, like the djembe drum, for instance, right? 
That their or the drum, origin of that drum is in uh, you know West Africa, Sudanic states, but it's it's most West African countries recognize the djembe drum, and, and that's a that has a very early tradition in Africa. But you could find that triangle drum. All you gotta do is look for it. Everybody's playing a djembe all over the world, you know. So so for me, that's a a good example. And then another one you guys really really talked about very nicely was was naming. Um, and that's another one. Like, I mean, by knowing the, 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 the days that you're born, like I'm, I'm Kofi, I'm a Friday born child. But, but each each person based on their name has a, a, a name uh, designated to them and the day that they're born. So that's a very sort of unique tradition as well. But it carries on to this very day, not just even in, um, you know, and, and you mentioned the Khan cultures. But yeah, other some other West African cultures do this as well to have different names. Um, but but it's a dynamic way to preserve culture and ideas and history of peoples because those names, as you all describe, hold a lot of culture and history and, va and value yeah. to them. You mentioned name, and I know that you, your parents named you, correct? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, do you believe your name is part of your identity? Why or why not? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I've been to Ghana so many times. I actually have a chief name in Ghana, oh, okay. uh, Asari Ankobia. Mm -hmm. Um, that yeah. says, you know, like this, you know, this is a chief and this thing. I'm supposed to wear the beads anytime I go to, uh, in a certain way to convey the chieftaincy. You know, I've gotten a little bit of land and this type of thing. I know some of my partners are like, you know, no, my name is, uh, you know, Mustafa. You know, they have a, a very significant name and it has value to them. And they have decided to do that. But me, I don't know, Robert was the name that my dad had and, and that was the name that was given to me. And that was his dad's name. So then I took that name. So so for me, it has value in that in that way, you know. So yeah, I value that name. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm Kofi too. I'm Friday born, um, got, uh, again. But yeah, no, I'm Ro I'm Robert. Yeah. Does any of your family come from Africa at all? My 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 sister's married to a Nigerian uh, uh, man, so I don't know if that uh, <laughs> does anything. But uh, I was just gonna say because I know like with people I think nowadays like maybe with our generation like having juniors and so people are like oh that's lazy or like they you know whatever but it's like a lot of it has meaning like you said oh, yeah. um, oh, and yeah. same thing with my family actually my family um, is from Liberia and they have land in Liberia it's my great grandma so my grandfather's mom who my, gran my grandfather and my grandmother also lived uh, in Liberia for a little while um, so a lot of things have meaning to us and like, you know, them having land there means a lot to us and they always want me to go back and, you know, you should. Visit. I know I do want to go actually you one should. day. You should. Um, Liberia, but, Liberia, they throw down over there a little uh, bit. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard it's a little, it's a little crazy. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, stuff like that is, is really interesting. You never know. I mean, I personally haven't been, but yeah, just stuff like that where like a lot of it might be generations old, but, you know, names and like you said, like you have the beads and stuff like stuff like that. I I think is really interesting um, and keeps us kind of it keeps us still close to our our identity, even if you know we're not in Africa right now. But you know it still keeps us. It gives us something to hold on to Definitely. a little bit. Thank you again, Robert, for joining us. Thank um, you guys. We hope that you enjoyed listening to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Oral Traditions Show. In this series, students explore West African cultures and the African-American diaspora. I'm Robert Hanser, professor of the Oral Traditions class. Our segment for this episode explores rituals and spirituality of the Fon people. We discuss the West African region, which includes Ghana, Benin, and Togo, the rituals of women warriors, and my rite of passage in writing about Africa.
Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is M. Nelson, along with my special guest, Robert Hansard. Today we're going to be talking about the importance of rituals and spirituality, specifically those stemming from West Africa and the Fon people. So Robert, you personally have been and you've shared some beautiful photos with me, so I want to just start off by saying thank you for sharing, with, sharing those with me and also your time. My first question is going to be pretty broad. Where did you go? And can you just give me like an overall, like how, what did you experience? Things sure, you did. sure, sure. Thanks for inviting me also, too. Um, uh, a lot of those pictures you see are from uh, three countries, right, conjoined next to each other, Ghana, Togo, and Benin. And the ones I think that relate, I mean, define are intermingled with all those groups, all those nations, as well as into Nigeria as well. And there's a, there's a Yoruba mix there, too, and different things. But the, a lot of those that, I mean, will be relevant come come from uh, Benin. Um, and I went to a few places. Abomey, which is one of the early, early places where the kings of Alada, um, you know, talk about their origin. And then another place was Cotonou, which is at the coast, which, um, and Porto Novo. And, and believe it or not, they have like this strange kind of French, old school French style to them. So they were, they were cool to be there. Me and my wife were laughing, you know. It kind of had that post... Uh, 1950s post-independence uh, sort of feel, kind of dilapidated, but still kind of the heyday of the 50s, you know, kind of eerie too, yeah. <laughs> to some degree. But uh, but yeah, that's that's where a lot of those, those pictures came from. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. What was the event or decision that sparked you to make the trip, and why was that so like important to you to what? to make the trip? Uh, good, good question. Uh, I think um, primarily, you know, I was motivated by, uh, yeah, I've been doing research on uh, West Africa for some years just as a graduate student. And that was sort of the, the culmination of my work was a six-month uh, stay in uh, Ghana. And then during that time, I went for about a month or so to Benin, and we spent some time there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it was par- partially scholarship, but in truth, what brought me into it was social justice kind of work. And I have a colleague, uh, John Ziegler, who teaches at DePaul. He used to be at the Egan Center. I believe he's still there. Um, he does a lot of work with, uh, you know, organizing groups, or, or, or used to, um, bringing groups to, to West Africa and introducing them to that kind of Atlantic connection. So I really, and he was using it as rites of passage. So kids that live in like West Inglewood and other communities had you know, these spiritual lessons that they could use yeah. as part of their growth pattern. Um, and it was very beneficial to a lot of lives. But that's really what first got me there because I was doing mm-hmm. social work. That's how I ended up there. And then as a graduate student, ended up pursuing a uh, degree in history. Yeah, PhD. absolutely. I'm going to kind of follow up uh, off that. Did you feel like your trip was almost a part of, like, that rite of passage? Did that you, did that have that a similar effect on you is like what you were saying like the student's version would be i I think so if anything in terms of a rite of passage of to write about africa effectively you know write about african experiences and legacies of of african americans here um you have to you have to go to the place Mm -hmm. and um, not enough effort is put forth into you know sort of projects and ideas to really promote uh, you know um, those kinds of journeys because mm-hmm. um, it does it is like a rite of passage and and you know for kids that went through the program there's story after story some of them completely transformed their lives being exposed to the program seeing these different facets of sort of Africa and then they they turned a corner I mean I, I could think of a handful of folks who have done very well 
um, and it was through this program, starting out with uh, this Connections project that got them got them sort of changed. So yeah, I mean, there, I think to me, yeah, there's some sort of rites of passage. I mean, my own journey's been a little bit different <laughs> uh, on some different things, but I think I think certainly like that that's a part of that, especially in terms of writing history. Yeah, that's amazing. Write write what you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm gonna transition to some of the photos now. So the first one that I want to start with, it looks like it's you partaking in a specific ritual. Um, am I correct that that's you in there? Yeah, that's me. Awesome. Can you, would you mind uh, just telling, uh, telling us what you're doing, what this uh, ritual is, what exactly is going on in this photo? Um, those are they're different women. If you saw a Woman King recently, mm-hmm. they're, this is, these, this, those are them. Those right? are them. The Hosey and the Hovey women. Um, and depending on, you know, which version people use to sort of say those two words, it could be spelt, you know, a Hovi or Hoji. Mm-hmm. So there's variations based on, you know, the English and the French translation and the Portuguese translation of the way the vowel, the, the sound of those, 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 those words together. But they're all talking about, you know, these women that the West classified as, you know, the Amazon or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but these were these warriors who, who, who definitely were very, women. very fierce. Yeah, but they also, too, had a bureaucratic role as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, with these women and this being so much somewhat ceremonial at this stage, they, they, they definitely was in the space of the sort of, okay, these are black Americans arriving and we want to sort of interact with them in a way to convey some messages about our, our culture and our legacy. And so, you know, we got to sort of get a taste of it. And so that, that was part of me participating in that in, in a dance. And it was actually at the end of this great story that was told and, and and right before that I mean if you've ever seen I mean there's a drum orchestra people don't mm-hmm. you, there's a drum orchestra I mean you, you have to hear it to sort of understand I mean the the, the, the polyrhythms are just blasting through there from so many different spaces and sounds and, and and like they did this whole thing and they told a story <laughs> and then after that they let us uh, you know get yeah. up and dance so that's me trying to trying to trying to dance yeah that, would, yeah that sounds beautiful do you remember what the story was about just recalling the legacy of the you know kings I want to say but I'm not exactly sure um, I would have to remember back and go and look at some some yeah. some, some resources yeah, to, absolutely to sort of I remember um, doing in all of our readings they they said in the rituals that was like a big part is like the story of telling the story uh, ahead of time ahead of the actual like like in this instance the dancing and the mm-hmm. music and stuff mm-hmm. so that's right. really that's really beautiful I also want to ask about these two people mm-hmm. here uh, let's start with this man who who is this man and uh what kind of conversations did you have? With oh, that's at least Simoni. He's the man. He's like one of the great historians. I think he's deceased just recently. The man. I mean, a great historian wrote about the interaction of the Portuguese and the region there, Bida Benin, histories of that, histories of culture and understanding of, you know, Vudun and spirit practice and history. Uh, and writing from an indigenous perspective that was writing in Colton. We had this really cool crib. You know, um, you know, Africa sometimes can be the, a bit about the hustle a lot. So people always can be in the mode of trying to shake down, trying to operate that money game on you a lot of times. But uh, he didn't. And like, it stands out when certain like, folks don't do it. And he didn't. Um, as a scholar and as a, just a, a giant of his work, he was just real cool and, you know, received myself and my wife. And, um, yeah, he got to talk to me about history and just helped me, you know, because I was writing about my dissertation was this argument about freedom. Mm-hmm. And African forms of freedom, and what do they mean vis-a-vis enlightenment? You know, traditions of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, ideas of freedom, individuality, and those kinds of things. 
so my, um, my idea was to consider freedom from West African forms and those not don't emerge from the Enlightenment. They come from ancestry, spirit, mm-hmm. you know, belief, these kinds of different things, you know, as one would imagine, you know. Yeah. So, so I was partly making a case for that and um, talking to him and doing a comparative analysis stuff. He, he was right there to sort of say, yeah, no, that you're on to something, you know, these are the things you ought to do, this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I was someone who helped guide some of my work. I mean, I mentioned him in my uh, dissertation, I believe. Amazing. Too. Yeah. yeah. So. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. And another person, who is she? She's kind of clearly, like, telling a story. So if you remember what she was talking about, that would also be great. But who is this woman? Oh, uh, that's Martine D'Souza. Her family is from the legacy of, uh, you know, their... Uh, the D'Souza family, which is really mm-hmm. big in Benin in terms of the trade and slaves and people, but also in other commodities. And so, um, you know, a couple of the Portuguese key D'Souza family members became very wealthy and took on, you know, numbers of wives and land and all these other things in, in, in Benin. And um, she's a descendant of that. But she, again, man, just a really, just a real cool sister, man. I mean, like, uh, at the time when we first met years ago, and this was through my friend uh, John Ziegler at Connections, um, she was wrestling with her belief. She was actually a practicing Catholic, but she was in a space where she was starting to break into what she knew, which was that she knew she was a, a voodoo priestess. She knew she was. She knew it all the time that everyone told her she was Catholic. She knew it. And so she started breaking away. And so I saw her years prior to that. I remember eating at her house and having a really good time. Uh, we had a feast all together and everything and all this great food. But I remember even then she was saying, I'm about to switch out, you know. <laughs> I'm about to trans, trans, you know, I'm about to go this direction. And so then years later when I saw her in 2008 and we got to talk, um, she was she was all readily moved and, 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 and tranced into her, transformed into this uh, spiritualist and voodoo uh, priestess. And, um, and, you know, just talked about her experiences and vis-a-vis that. And then I also asked her, too, about freedom because mm-hmm. that was my big that, in, yeah. in question. And so, you know, and it brought forth a lot of things about histories of the Dahomey and Benin. And that's why I could appreciate the, the remaking of Woman King, trying to tell a different narrative because there, there's more to the story mm-hmm. than, than what we all, yes. always, always receive. So, so that kind of thing. Yeah. I love Woman King, yeah. Um, awesome. Uh, do you remember specifically, because you were talking about how she was in that transition and she had fully transitioned, did she say anything to you about like how that felt? For her now that she was embracing the voodoo, the spirituality of like herself that she felt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just—I mean, I could tell she was uh, liberated for one thing, mm. and, and she felt like you know she was she could she knew herself. I mean, those are the kinds of energies I was getting from her. Yeah. Um, that she felt more sure of herself, uh, more comfortable in her own skin. And then from that space, she begins to talk about, you know, some even, you know, contemporary problems and things there, you know. And it's such a hallowed space to go in someone's shrine and be in there. But also what was very, very funny was <laughs> there was little kids in there and a little boy, he just, bam, he knocked everything all over the place. And we were all kind of like, oh, we all had to laugh. But she's like, OK, yeah. I got to start again. So she had to do everything all over. But but very cool, uh, very welcoming. Uh, my wife as well was with me and we both mm-hmm. traveled and um, she, she, she received us very, very nicely and everything. That's so, wonderful. Yeah. Liberated. Yep. I think that's a beautiful word to describe that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, moving on from the photos and things, in your own terms, how would you define spirituality? Hmm, I don't know. It's just, you know, all, if I have to be honest, all religions say and describe some, some greater power, something greater than um, oneself. That's what I believe in. 
I think it, you know, it could maybe take different forms or shapes or what have you, but it's having a, an understanding that there's something greater than you, that sometimes things have larger meaning and larger understanding that's just bigger than you. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with that, and I know sometimes that's not, that's not a comfortable space to be in, but I'm okay believing that, you know, after living these many years that, you know, something might be going on that I might just be just a, a pit or a parcel of something mm-hmm. broader or greater. So if I'm contributing to that, then okay, that, that's cool. You know, um, so that, that in that way, I see spirituality. I grew up as a, um, you know, my dad was a Baptist minister, so mm-hmm. I knew church. Um, I knew the spirit. I knew people catching the Holy Spirit. I know people talked of possession. Um, so I saw those things, Matt. So to me, even as a child, you know, I was able to see that. But like going to Africa just changed the game and switched the gear on the whole thing because then you had to you have to deal with something that might be older and have a more broader meaning mm-hmm. and impact than the you know the arrival of these other this Christian Islam forms that come for all their sort of relevance in Africa the traditional belief system to me is like it's and spirituality in that way is very it's so democratic because every mm. every every place is is a place that has spirit like you go to a, a river and they'll say oh certainly this river there's a deity for this river and most of them will know the name of the deity in that local place this river has real power we respect this river on this day we do this or this so like it, it, it and, and and that has ecological impact and environmental impact too but I like the way that uh, um, people um, sort of deal with spirit in that way. It can be anything in a rock and then uh, anything. People, people, people find it. And, it's, and I mean, and, and the West has distorted that into fetish. But really, it's, it's, it's something, it's, it's really at the, at the basis of what we know. I mean, we know, I mean, we can get into a- atoms and wormholes and all of that and start drawing some parallels even in the mind. I mean, that, that, that remind us, hey, these guys are touching on something that we just ignored and we distorted and we, we said it was this. But in truth, really, hold on, man. <laughs> we need to go back and plug back in to make better sense of what we thought we knew, you know, about some of that, you know, um, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, don't apologize. I actually I really loved how you defined it. And I was planning on sharing my own, but you kind of hit the nail on the head for myself as well. It's just the, the feeling that there is something bigger. There is something more that I'm I'm not a part of, per se. And I think you described it really, really beautifully. Um, thank you. In that same kind of realm, have you had any experience, like, with, on your trip or just in life with voodoo or witchcraft and things like that? I know you were kind of telling, like, a little bit of a story, but, like, do you have any experience with it? Uh, you know... I don't know. Little things have happened here and there, this kind of thing, where people have, you know, said or inferred this kind of thing, but uh, nothing that um, I don't think has been very impactful to Mm -hmm. me. I I just, I don't, I don't. And um, that doesn't mean I don't believe that there aren't sort of malevolent things that people try to operate with and against. And we've seen that function in in some very strange ways, you know, recently, even even politically. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I... I don't know. I, I, I mean, I don't I stop short of that. But also, I know that belief plays a role there, too. You know, I, w- I, w- I would sort of use this the analogy of this story. You know, I went to visit the guy at the Comrati Castle. He's This is castle where all these slaves have come and many people have died. The ground has human, you know, you know, excrement and other matter that's been padded down for, you know, generations or, you know, this kind of thing. And he said, well, sometimes, you know, the Rastas come from Jamaica. When they come, he said, they fall out. He said, they get close to the space and just, you could see it. It's doing something to them. Um, But he says, I sleep here and I feel comfortable every night. And I'm kind of where he is. 
I could see where he was coming from. I sleep here and I'm comfortable every night. I'm in a space of comfort. I'm, I mean, I mean, it doesn't mean everything is okay. It just means that, you know, okay. You know, so to me, like, uh, I, I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that answers what, where you're getting, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, it just... No, I definitely kind of get where you're where you're coming from. Um, I guess a way to kind of follow it up, when you were there, you said you, you felt, like, the same as the man, like, not much as... Um, has there any? Has there ever been a time where you've gone a place where you're like, where you, where you are touched by the the space, the area, where it hurt, like hurt, kind of hurts to be there? Not that, but I felt pain that I felt in my own personal experience be released in places in Africa. So maybe the opposite of it. Issues that maybe yeah. happen here, um, very traumatic <laughs> things that have occurred and experiences here in Chicago, and that left a little mark on me for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all of a sudden, I was there, and I remember being somewhere, and we went to some waterfall or something. I forgot what we were doing. And all of a sudden, I mean, I felt like I was like floating. I'm like, dude, I feel, I feel, I feel. I can't even remember what it was that maybe was holding me down. It's gone. Whatever it was, I mean, it was a literal feeling. Uh, I've had those kinds of occurrences in, in many ways you know it's beautiful um so i don't know but yeah no i think that actually answers my question better than what i had that's that's uh really beautiful that you've had those experiences of like being able to let go the things that happened here in the west in africa let it let it off your shoulders that's mm-hmm. beautiful mm-hmm. well thank you so much i want to thank you again for joining me i really appreciate your insight and just you spending time and sharing your your experience with me and your your spirit. It's very appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the thoughtful questions and consideration of the subject. I'm Robert Hanser, Associate Professor of Humanities, History, and Social Sciences at Columbia College, Chicago. We conclude today's show with a commentary on the book, 500 African Voices, which are the accounts of African slave ship survivors over four centuries of the slave trade. Students highlight the accounts of Rosa Cruz, a formerly enslaved writer and religious mystic, and Phyllis Wheatley, who is a first known and published African-American poet. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Mason Hubbard. Hey, everyone. And Alexandra Gonzalez. Sorry. Hi, guys. And I'm Priscilla Contreras. And today we're going to be talking about 500 Voices. So to give a little background on this, it's a book that was written with multiple uh, excerpts detailing stories of enslaved people. So we will be explaining and focusing on two of the narratives, the first one being Rosa Cruz and the second being Phyllis Wheatley. We're going to just take it away with Alexandra. Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so the first narrative is Rosa Maria Equipiaca de Veracruz, better known as Rosa Equipiaca, was born in 1719 and died in 1771. She was a formerly enslaved writer and religious mystic. She wrote the book, The Sacred Theology of Love of God, Brilliant Light of Pilgrim Souls. Rosa was born on the Costa de Mina, which is close to Nigeria. She was born a member of the Kora people and by the age of six was enslaved and taken to the Atlantic slave trade to Rio de Janeiro in 1725. Um, when she arrived, she was baptized at the Igreja de Candelaria and given the name Rosa. Um, in 1733, she was taken to the Brazilian province of Minas Gerais and forced into sexual slavery. At the age of 14, she was sold to the Inficionado mining camp in the gold prospecting region of Minas Gerais. Um, There she lived for 15 years as a prostitute. According to her own testimony to 
ecclesiastical authorities. At the age of 29, Rosa was possessed by demon and received regular exorcisms from Francisco Goncalves Lopez, a Portuguese priest known as the Scourge of Demons. They both developed an intimate bond that led to their denunciation as lovers and prosecution by the Inquisition. Later in 1748, she underwent a mystical religious conversion and first saw visions which continued sporadically for the rest of her life. After release, Rosa abandoned prostitution and became a fervent Catholic devotee. Um, she preached to crowds and phosphated the future. This behavior led to her veneration as a saint, even by her own master and his family. She renamed herself Rosa Maria Egipiaca de Veracruz, a name inspired by the famous Egyptian saint, another former prostitute. Uh, manumitted in 1748, she moved in, into, in 1751 to Rio de Janeiro and became a spiritual leader. She inspired a large and influential following in Rio, but her visions and prosphane kept her in trouble with church authorities who had her imprisoned and beaten. And in 1763, she was transported to Lisbon, Portugal to appear before the Inquisition. There she languished in prison until she died in 1771. Um, so some facts about Rosa was that she became the first African in Brazil known to not only learn the alphabet, but also to have written the book, which stated before is the sacred theology of love of God, brilliant light of pilgrim souls, which only six, which only six of the 290 pages that survived. Um, she was also founded the retreat of Our Lady of Labor for former prostitutes, most of whom were either black or multiracial. Her writings and proclamations made Rosa the main Brazilian exponent of a cult dedicated to worshiping the hearts of St. Joseph and Christ's grandparents. Okay, thanks, Alex. I really appreciate that. Mason, are you ready to talk about Phyllis? Yeah, I'm good to go. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I'm going to be uh, discussing Phyllis Wheatley. Although the exact date of her birth is not documented, scholars believe that Wheatley was born in 1753 in West Africa, most likely in present-day Gambia or Senegal. She was sold by a local chief to a visiting trader who took her to Boston and then in the then British colony of Massachusetts on July 11, 1761, on a slave ship called the Phyllis. On arrival in Boston, Wheatley was bought by wealthy Boston merchant and tailor John Wheatley as a slave for his wife Susanna. The Wheatleys named her Phyllis, after the ship that she was transported on on her way to North America. She was given her, her last name Wheatley as it was a common custom if the surname was used for an enslaved people. The Wheatley's 18-year-old daughter, Mary, was Phyllis's first tutor in writing and reading. Their son, Nathaniel, also tutored her. John Wheatley was known as a progressive throughout New England. His family afforded Phyllis an unprecedented education for an enslaved person, and one unusual for a woman of any race at the time. By the age of 12, Phyllis was reading Greek and Latin classics in their original language, as well as difficult passages from the Bible. Wheatley wrote her first published poem when she was 13. She wrote over a hundred poems in her life. Recognizing her literary ability, the Wheatley family supported Phyllis's education and left household labor to their other domestic enslaved workers. The Wheatleys often exhibited Phyllis's abilities to friends and family. Strongly influenced by her readings of the works of Alexander Pope, John Milton, Homer, Horace, and Virgil, Phyllis began to write poetry. 
At the age of 20, Phyllis accompanied Nathaniel Wheatley to London, in part for her health, as she suffered from chronic asthma, but primarily because Susanna believed Phyllis would have a better chance of publishing her book of poems there over in the colonies. Phyllis had an audience with Frederick Bull, who was the Lord Mayor of London and other prominent members of British society. Even an audience with King George III was arranged, but Phyllis had unfortunately returned to Boston before it could take place. Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon, became interested in the talented young African woman and subsidized the publication of Wheatley's volume of poems, which appeared in London in the summer of 1773. Subsequently, after her book was published, Phyllis was amanumitted, or freed from her enslavers, and lived ten years free before she unfortunately passed away to illness. Now, her legacy leaves behind the story behind a tale of change and new ideas. Her story was a testimony to freedom, with one of her notable lines being, Can I then but pray others may feel tyrannic sway? Wheatley's net poems reflected several influences of her life. She is strongly against slavery. She says that all people should have their freedom. For example, she said America should be set free from England and African Americans should be set free from slavery. She wrote several letters to ministers and others on liberty and freedom. That shows she put her beliefs in her letters and her poems to tell people what she thinks is right. She is notable because she is the first known and published black poet in America and left behind ideals and values of self-expression. The story of Phyllis Wheatley Peters was one story of her own quest to find her authentic voice and put it out there in the world when it has never been done before. And it's a reminder that no matter who we are, that's a challenge to all of us to encounter in our lives and overcome. Hey, thanks for reading us uh, that. I really appreciate it. So do you guys have any, some, any thoughts on this stuff? I think in terms of my narrative, which was about Rosa, I think it's very important to note that although she was enslaved um, at a young age and, you know, was taken advantage of and became a prostitute in an early age, um, she overcame that. And I say that she was the first black woman in Brazil to learn the alphabet and write books, um, her famous book. So I think it's just important to note that although you have gone through hard stuff in your life and you know, have encountered all these problems, you could still, you know, at the end of the day, um, have an amazing ending and just, you know, um, come out with stuff that is just amazing and people can read. Yeah, that is like such a great comeback story. You know, the story of Rosa, though. I was like, as a woman, just going through that and just like, yeah, comeback story. Yeah. And what about you? Do you have any, like, anything? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, just to continue on Rosa real quick, I think that, yeah, Rosa's tale is very important and is an example of people overcoming obstacles in their lives. And I also think the story of Phyllis uh, was kind of eye-opening because it sort of goes to show that the injustices in America were very prominent at the time, and there wasn't a lot of way for African Americans to find expression in any sort of like artistic forms. And Wheatley was definitely a pioneer of that for African Americans in America, as she was the first, like I said um, during my uh, reading, that she was the first uh, African American to have any sort of published works in media at all at the time. So I think it's sort of like... Uh, a revolutionary take on how people and their narratives have been so like uh, dismissed because I have never personally heard of Phyllis Wheatley before and I think that learning her story and being able to recognize that her voice 
essentially transformed her life and the lives of countless African Americans at the time is really important. So I think that these narratives were a very profound uh, way to explore and sort of dive into the way that people found different ways to express themselves, whether it be through religion or art. Yeah, I agree with that. I just think that these people like just really uh, like, yeah, it's just a great comeback story. And it's just another way for like women to show that, you know, we have been just not, I'm not necessarily smarter, <laughs> but like, you know, just like that we have been thinking about this for a while and just like learning, you know, smarter ways to be able to tackle like issues such as these. So um, both of these women are very inspiring, in my opinion. Thank you for listening to The Oral Tradition Show. I'm Robert Hanser, professor for The Oral Traditions class. Special thanks to Columbia College's Collective Impact Series, a provost initiative that addresses community engagement through art making. The show is also made possible through the collaboration of Humanities, History, and Social Sciences Department and the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago, Aaron McCarty, Interim Chair. Thanks to the 2023 Oral Traditions class with assistance from Max Hatlam, production intern for WCRX-FM, for producing this episode. Thanks again for listening to Oral Traditions on WCRX-FM.